So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. This is God's word. So we all know Jesus had 12 disciples, right? About almost everybody in the world knows that. Uh, This was his team. These were his guys. Uh, Don't confuse this with what you're going to see in chapter 6 where Jesus went up to a mountain and prayed all night. There, he selected them to be apostles, which is far different. There are only and ever will be 12 apostles. The book of Revelation talks about in the New Jerusalem, there's 12 stones. These men are forever embedded as 12 apostles. However, there were many people that followed Jesus, believe it or not. In fact, Jesus has been around these guys for about nine months. This is the second time he's making this call. The first time they were out fishing. Notice this time they're washing their nets. They had been with Jesus off and on. They were at the wedding at Canaan when he turned water into wine. Some of them were John the Baptist's disciples. Luke talks about an entourage of women that were following Jesus. So, so it wasn't only these 12. There were others that followed Jesus because Jesus could only be in one place at one time. So he needed people to sit people in order. They, these guys were ushers, basically, uh, for a big part of three years. Um, sometimes they go and prepare rooms for him or get him a donkey for the triumphal entry. Uh, they would do various tasks, but the more important thing is one day, after he had poured into them, they would take the gospel into all the world. And they would be pillars in the early church. So there was a lot at stake here. Jesus of Nazareth declares his mission statement. He's going to open blind eyes, set the captives free. Now he comes to Capernaum, his base of operation in the Galilee, and he begins to build his team. These are the guys that will follow him for three years. Now, this has always fascinated me because all my adult life I've studied team building and uh, high-performance teams, how they work and, and who are the people you put on your team. And so when I look at all that I've learned versus what Jesus does, I have somewhat of a dilemma. So let me start with what I know about building high-performance teams. I'll only take a few minutes on this. Some of you lead teams. All of you sit on a team somewhere in life. So maybe there's something you can learn from this. Uh, In the area of athletics, I've read at least 12 books on coaching. And so I know some of the great coaching philosophies of the greatest coaches that have ever lived. I've read military biographies, political biographies, corporate leaders, managers, and if you, if you distill everything they talk about, you come out with about four principles everybody believes. Everybody's saying the same things. They just have different anecdotes, different stories. But here's how it really breaks down. If you're going to build a high-performance team, if you're going to accomplish your goals, mostly everyone will tell you you have to hire, draft, recruit tens, A players, high performers. Why? Because talent matters. You need to select people on your team who are skilled, smart, hardworking, passionate, resilient, and then coach them to peak performance. Um, Bill Parcell said, he said, something strange happens every once in a while where I become a better coach because I have greater players on my team. And that's really a secret a lot of coaches won't talk about. 
uh, your success really depends on having great players. But great players aren't enough. High-capacity, A-type performers are desirable in every organization, but you must place a strong emphasis that these people be what we call high-character people. What does that mean? Well, it means they're going to behave, right? That's a good thing. They need to have values that they live by. They need to buy into you and the mission. Every day in America, uh, people are choosing talent over virtue to their detriment. When you choose talent over virtue, you win in the long run. You lose, I mean, you win in the short run, you lose in the long run. John Maxwell wrote a book called The 17 Indispensable Laws of Teamwork. He lists law number eight as the law of the bad apple. You don't have to read that chapter. Just the imagery, you know where it's going, right? The bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Uh, look up on the screen. John put this together where he basically said, let's take for granted that everybody has great talent, right? Maybe the school you teach in, the business you work in, play on an athletic team. Let's say everybody really did hire great talent. Is that enough? Well, the answer is no, because then we would see great outcomes across the board, right? Government would work well. The military would work well. Sports teams would all win championships. We know that they don't. John, after years and years of research, and he gives examples, he thinks the one thing that changes the equation between bad teams and great teams is attitude. What is the attitude of the individuals on that team? That's why you hear so much about culture today. That you have to build an outstanding culture. Uh, remember the Philadelphia 76ers? They had great talent one year, but they had an individual who didn't want to go to practice, right? And we all know how that went. Henry Cloud, in his book, Necessary Endings, in chapter one, and just floored me, I couldn't read the rest of the book for a while, talked about a CEO who had a high-performing salesman. This guy was blowing records uh, out of the water every month, selling and selling and selling. The problem was he was leaving everybody on staff in his wake. And people were complaining and morale was down. The CEO, because of the numbers being so great, did nothing about it. Two years later, not only was the salesman fired, but so was the CEO. And so I think the lesson's pretty strong. Character among team members is a non-negotiable. The third learning from team building comes from Jim Collins, who's kind of a guru in the business world. He said, once you get A performers, you know, these top-level performers, and you get them on your bus, you got to get them in the right seats. Uh, this is the whole strength-based movement we see today, where you want people to operate in their giftedness. You want people to be in their niche and work to their strengths where they're going to give the greatest effort and success to a particular organization. And then the final thing is once you have these A players with great talent and they buy into the culture and they're on the right seat of the bus, you want to give them BHAGs. That's an acronym. Big, hairy, audacious goals. Why? Because high-performing people don't let... They don't like the bar set real low. Great example of this, it's infamous by now, was Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. Apple was growing at such a, a fast rate that he was trying to hire people from around the country to run the organization, and he was fascinated with the CEO, or uh, I think it was the CFO, for the Pepsi company. 
And Steve Jobs tried for years to woo this guy to Apple. The guy kept turning him down. Finally, he went to this guy. He said, look, you have a choice in life. You can either come with us and bring, and we're going to build products, really cool products, that will change the way people live, or you can make sugared water for the rest of your life. And he got that guy. That was a real strong sales technique. Now, why did I take you through all this? Well, hopefully you learned something from it. But the reason I took you through it is because this is standard practice, standard truth, and probably everyone's in agreement on this is how you build high-performing teams. Now, Jesus comes along, and he's got to build a team of men that will change the world, that will take the gospel from little Israel into the entire world. We're talking billions of people matter in this deal. The problem is, whenever I've been taught about team building or leadership in the Bible, and as I look at Luke chapter 5, and the way I've always heard it taught, is that Jesus bypassed all the principles I've just given you. And he went around the Galilee looking for 12 bumbling idiots that we call the B-possles, and he would make them the A-possles, all to prove that God only works if you take the off-scouring of the world. We even have a scripture to back it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, where Paul writes, Not many noble, not many wise, according to this world, are called, because God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Even in Calvary Chapel movement, Chuck Smith wrote a book called Harvest. I recommend everyone read it. It's the early pastors who came into the movement and pastored some of the largest churches in America. And the tagline of the book is gang members, drug addicts, the amazing story of Calvary Chapel, and the unlikely leaders God called. So when I look at all this, it raises a ton of questions in my mind. Obviously, the church is the pillar of truth in the community. We're the hope of the world. We have a mission that matters more than anything. We want to see lost people get found and found people get discipled and grow. Marriages at our stake. Children at our stake. You know, there's so much that we do. It's so important. And if everything rises and falls on leadership, and I believe it does, then are really all the principles I just shared with you off the table? Are we not going to put people in the area of their giftedness? This church... And spiritual leadership look that much different from secular leadership? Those are some of the things I want to explore as we look at Peter and Matthew's calling here in chapter 5. And let me make a few points, and then I'll break the chapter down. It seems as if Jesus, when he went to look for his 12 men, chose men from among the ranks of common workers, not professional clergy. Now, all the professional clergy were in Jerusalem. This was the white-collar workers, right? Priests, scribes, rabbis were all in Jerusalem. Most of the blue-collar tradesmen and craftsmen were in the Galilee, but that's where Jesus went. Now, this isn't totally uh, new. We see it in the Old Testament. Daniel was a cupbearer to Artaxerxes. David was a shepherd. Amos was a sheep breeder from Tekoa. But why would Jesus go... And he picked at least four fishermen, maybe seven were fishermen. Why did he pick these blue-collar types? Uh, The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said it best. He said, the spiritually-minded person does not differ 
from the material-minded person chiefly in thinking about different things, but in thinking about things differently. He said it's possible to think materially about God and spiritually about food. Now, it's more profound than it looks, but here's what he was saying. The Gnostics and those in Athens were arguing that matter was evil, right? So they had this whole idea of Gnosticism of, of evil and spiritual and and spiritual things weren't material. So if you were a fisherman, if you were involved in a trade, then that was secular and it was secondary to what was the spiritual. And Jesus kind of breaks that down and he walks into ordinary life and he picks fishermen and basically declares that everything is spiritual. There's no such thing as the secular. Every single thing is spiritual. Whether you're chopping onions in a kitchen or washing dishes or sitting in a boardroom or preaching the gospel, if you're doing with all your heart and that's what you were made to do, it's all profoundly spiritual. That was the world Jesus entered into. Now, why would he choose Peter? Again, Jesus has watched Peter for nine months. He knows a lot about Peter. Can I give you some of the upsides of Peter versus maybe some of the white-collar guys in Jerusalem? First of all, Peter ran a business. And when you run a business, my dad ran a small business. He was a landscaper, and even though he had five trucks and maybe 100 accounts, it was more Sanford and Son than some of the stuff you see today. And we didn't have quad cabs with air conditioning. We weren't even allowed to stop to get drinks. We had to drink from hoses. and So, I mean, it, it, it was... But, you know, Wall Street, Main Street, it's all the same. My dad had to make a buck. He had to get up early in the morning. It was all depending on him. Peter was a businessman. He was entrepreneurial. He had to show up one time. He had a bias for action, right? Jesus said, can you row me out? He, he didn't analytically think it through or pontificate from behind a desk. He gets in a boat and he rows Jesus out. When I look at Peter, I began to reflect on my life. You realize everything I do in ministry, I was prepared for by every other thing I did in life. There's not a week that goes by where somebody doesn't ask me about seminary, where somebody says, oh, my kid wants to go to seminary, or what seminary would you, I'm not against Bible college or seminary. But God has taken the totality of my life and prepared me for this day. I said, my dad was a landscaper. He ran his business out of his head. He had this little copy book that nobody could read, right? And he didn't even put the right names of the accounts down. Like he called one house Vietnam or the house with the dog or, you know, the lady in the walker. And he got half of their names wrong, but we all knew what they were. He was a multitasker. And I picked up a lot of those traits from him. I learned the value of beautiful facilities by a lot of the accounts that we had. Later, when I went to college, I studied economics. That helped me in what I do today. Um, I learned sociology. I had a minor in that. I learned teamwork from playing college basketball. My mom was in the restaurant business all her life. When she married her second husband, they opened a restaurant. So I learned about food service and hospitality. When I worked at Boeing, I learned what corporate techniques were like. I don't know a lot about church history. Uh, it's probably the weakest area of my study. But I know this, whenever church history was entrepreneurial, the church grew. Whenever it became ecclesiastical, it went down. What do I mean by that? 
Well, I'm reading a biography by George Whitfield. George Whitfield had thousands of people coming to hear him at the age of 25 years old. He was out of the box. He was a great thinker. Ben Franklin loved to come and hear George Whitfield when he came to Philadelphia. Ben Franklin couldn't stand the local clergy because to them it was ecclesiastical. Um, Whitfield would talk about life and things that were practical. Again, out of the box. Billy Graham, starting crusade ministries in the 20th century. Some of the megachurches, what they've done. The church has always grown. And so it seems like Jesus went this route. The second thing Jesus seemed to do is choose people with limited formal education. Now, is God against formal education? No, I'll talk about that in a minute. But seemingly, Jesus, again, picked blue-collar guys. Uh, Formal schools didn't exist in this day. There's no Harvard or Yale or Cambridge at this time. A lot of this was homeschooling, uh, synagogue schooling, and kids would be weeded out very quickly. By the time you were 12 or 14, they knew who the high achievers were. Most of them would choose a rabbi. Most of them would go to Jerusalem. Everybody else would pick up a trade or a craft. Now, Jesus chooses these men with trades and crafts because I think he understood what I'm starting to understand is that you're going to have to train people anyway. You're going to have to teach them um, what they're going to do anyway. You're going to have to pour your life into them. So why not go after people who already know how to do something, to show up? Um, Some of the people in Jerusalem probably didn't have the gifts he was looking for. Sometimes people with formal uh, education are rigid in their thinking. Sometimes tasks are beneath them. Like, I have a PhD, I'm not going to row you out in a boat. I'm not going to sit people down in sections. I'm not going to ask that kid for loaves and fishes. I'm not going to go prepare a room. I'm kind of above all that. And then there's the sovereignty of God. Like I said, high-achieving kids that were really smart would choose a rabbi to follow. Isn't it ironic that Jesus would walk around the Galilee and look at men like Peter and Matthew and say, I choose you? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that so like God? That he would come and say, no, I've chosen you. That's God's sovereignty. That's grace. There's a lot of data that that supports what I just shared with you today. More than 50% of all CEOs of Fortune 500 companies had C averages in college. 65% of all U.S. senators came from the bottom of their classes. 75% of U.S. presidents were in the lower half of their classes. And more than 50% of millionaire entrepreneurs never finished college. They never finished their formal training. The third thing Jesus did when he chose his disciples is he looked for raw potential, not finished products. Peter's a great example. Peter had raw material. He was a natural-born leader. There's four lists of the 12 disciples in Scripture. Peter's always listed first. He was the leader of the 12, no doubt about it. Sometimes we have this faulty thinking where we think teams are, let's put 12 people together and we'll get this grand result. No, normally that's called a committee. Normally nothing gets done. Do you know why? Because you need a leader. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, put 12 people in a room and a leader arises, you'll get something done. Again, the old adage is, is if everyone's in charge, no one's in charge. 
Jesus was in charge of the 12. Peter, James, and John were the three under that, and Peter was the head of them. Peter was self-confident, ambitious, commanding. He was a great communicator. Now, you know, he, uh, he was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He gets a lot of jokes about that. But at least he said something. At least he was willing to communicate. And, of course, God would work on that with him, and he would become a great communicator. One of the things that's overlooked about Peter and, I think, leaders is their curiosity. We often forget about this. Peter asked more questions than all the other disciples combined. He was a very curious person. Curiosity is something that I think God has placed in me. Uh, My grandparents lived eight blocks from the sports complex, and I watched Veterans Stadium be built uh, from my grandparents' house. And when they finally built it, I would go down to my grandparents, and sometimes my grandfather and I would go to entire Phillies homestands, like 10 games in a row. Here's why. He was a senior citizen. He got in for 50 cents. I was under 14. I got in for 50 cents. We used to go to a baseball game for a dollar. Can you imagine that? One dollar. I remember being 10 years old. I loved sports, and I would watch the game, but my mind was so curious. I would ask my grandfather, you know, how they sell all these tickets and how they get the team from one stadium to the other and how do they select all the guys. I was always curious about how organizations ran. Peter had initiative, bias for action. Peter was willing to be involved. Hey, can I walk on the water? Can I come out to where you are? Cutting Malchus's ear off in the garden, he was always willing to get into the fray, and people like to follow that. He had character, he had courage. He had all the raw materials that would make him a great leader. So I want to ask the question again. Can God only use the unfashioned? Can God only use those who are kind of average? Do the noble, the wise, the brilliant have no place in God's economy? F.B. Meyer said this, and I think he says it the best. He said, the majority of those who, from time to time, have been called to his holy service have been selected from among the foolish and weak and despised ranks of the human family, that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of man. There have been, get this, thousands, thousands of noble exceptions But as a rule, not many wise, not many great, not many noble, not many by this world's estimate have been called. The whole of the pit that has yielded God his materials has been of common clay, and the rock from whence his stones have been hewn are from ordinary grain. But there's been thousands of exceptions. Moses was an exception. Raised in Pharaoh's house, he knew how complex organizations ran. Raised in all the might and wisdom of the Egyptians. Paul is an exception. Paul was brilliant. Uh, Nehemiah, brilliant, cupbearer to the king. So, So what are we looking at here? Well, I think the defining moment that ties all this together comes in verse 4, where Jesus is finished teaching and he says, Peter, uh, let's row out for a catch. You know, Jesus is going to pay him back for letting him use his boat. And, uh, Peter gets ruffled a little here. Look what he says in verse 5. 
It says, but Simon answered and said to him, Master, it's a pistatos, which means boss or captain. We have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let the net down. Peter's like, look, I'm the professional here. I know about fishing. You fish at night. We fished all night. We caught nothing. No one fishes at this time of the day. However, he had such buy-in to Jesus. They go out. And there's such a haul, the nets start breaking. And they got to call other guys over. Now, Peter could have thought, wow, we hit the fishing lottery today. I mean, if this keeps up, you know, our bottom line, our PO will look really good. Sometimes you plug Jesus into your thing and you think you'll do really well. Instead, he falls to his knees. And he says, depart from me, Lord. Curios, supreme Lord, not captain or boss. Because I'm a sinful man. See, what happened to Peter that day happened to Moses on the backside of the desert. It happened to Paul in Arabia. It happens to all of us. Somewhere along the line, when you become a Christian, God puts you through this funnel, this cauldron, whatever you want to call it, where he puts us through this time where we realize as we're stripped by God that the power must be of him and not of us. Now, he doesn't strip us of all our talents. He just strips us in trusting in those talents. You see, Moses, with all the wisdom and might of Egypt, was going to kill every last Egyptian and bury him in the sand. You think that was efficient? Where God stripped him of that and said, no, how about if I drown the whole entire army by my power? And by the way, Moses, can you trust the stupid shepherd's staff? It took 40 years for Moses to learn that. Paul, seven years in Arabia. Peter is going through this sifting process where he realizes that absolute surrender is what God's looking for. And he's not looking for absolute surrender so we'll kowtow to him. Jesus wants Peter to know, he wants us to know that a ship can't have two captains. That there can't be God's way and our way. That's why I think a lot of Christians are Christians but they haven't crossed over to becoming disciples. See, disciples drop their nets. Disciples leave everything behind. They leave all the wisdom that they think they have and they turn it over to God and they begin to make decisions based on the word of God and on what God says. And many times that runs counter to the world. That's why we become foolish. If you remember anything in this message, remember this. Brokenness equals broken nets. Brokenness equals broken nets. Peter was broken that day. He trusted Jesus and the nets burst. Why is that important? Because on the day of Pentecost, after he had made a thousand mistakes, after they had argued who was the greatest, after he said, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, Moses, and Elijah, after he denied Jesus three times, he made a series of mistakes. But on the day of Pentecost, he stands up and he preaches. And it's not a great sermon. But guess what? He's broken. And the nets break again, 3,000 are added to the church, then 5,000. Why? Because Peter went through this cauldron and this funnel where he realized that discipleship is about following Jesus and his ways, not our ways. You know, we're talking about this extension campus out in the 
Braemar, Ardmore areas, we can reach, reach more people in Philadelphia, more people in Delaware County. The, really the heart behind it, besides reaching people, is that I want to take a core of young people and some older folks and really show them what we did 21 years ago. Because today there's all these methods out there, there's all these cool churches, there's all these ways of doing things, and, and I want to show a young group of people that know what God has to do first is strip us down so that we understand we can't change one heart or one mind. You know, a friend of mine told me about a new church in his area where they give out Eagles jerseys every Sunday. Well, that's great. You can give out Eagles jerseys if you want. It's not going to change anybody. When I look at this text, I think about how oriented we are to methods. I think about how oriented somebody could be to Jesus catching that haul of fish and saying, ah, I know what it was. You got to use this certain boat, certain bait. You always got to fish in this area where it's the time of day. We're so tracking with methods. And what we don't understand is that there really was no methodology. There was no how-to. What Peter was learning that day was who-to. Who's the one we go to? Who's the one we listen to? It's his voice. And he says, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He had a poverty of spirit. What was the poverty of spirit? He, He understood the power had to be of God. Now, I don't want to throw techniques out the window. I really don't. You know, you can learn a lot about preaching and teaching. You can learn a lot about openings and closings and illustrations, and I get all that. The problem is you can't get up on a Sunday morning and trust in those things. They're all good things, but until you trust that only God can change a heart and a mind, you'll never succeed. You know, as long as you're relying on your great dog story is going to wow a crowd, you haven't gone through the funnel. Or if you're wearing hip clothes, you haven't gone through the funnel. I was talking to a pastor recently who's out of ministry today because of sexual sin. Don't think about who it is. And um, we were talking about, and this is a little insight on what church leaders go through. Every single pastor, every church leader has a season of time, months, weeks, days. It happens all year, some part of the year. Where you think, God, you made a grand mistake. Should have got another guy. A more talented guy. A more charismatic guy. A funnier guy. Somebody knows what they're doing. Somebody called to do this. God, you just got the wrong guy. I'm not the guy for this. And this pastor shared with me. He said, you know when you go through those times? I said, yeah. He said, never again look down on yourself for going through those times. Because it's a sign that you're still humble and pliable. He said, I lost that. I had supreme confidence in what I was doing. I I knew how to move a crowd. I knew what I was doing. I knew how to run a church. I knew how to do it so much, I thought even in my sexual sin, God would overlook it. The greatest thing we can ever learn is that only God through the power of his word, can change a heart and mind. Not your great argument, although I think you should have arguments. Not something you heard from Robbie Zacharias. I think you should listen to Robbie Zacharias. Not your cool dog story. Not the dog and pony show you're going to take somebody to and think they're going to accept Christ. Power of Almighty God is the only thing Peter believed in. 
It's the only thing Matthew believed in. It's the only thing all the disciples, Paul, believed in. And then Jesus makes these profound, this profound statement. And he says to him, follow me. James is there, other fishermen. And Jesus said, for now you're going to catch men. Literally, you're going to catch them alive. Peter has a decision to make. I can fish for the rest of my life, noble profession. Or I can do what I was put on this earth to do. Catch men. Change the course of families. Change the course of nations. Trust in this captain who's guiding me. He gets a glimpse of that on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 arrived in the church, then 5,000. And Peter learns what it means to be a disciple. To not lean on his own understanding and trust the ways of the world, but to trust God. And you could be a blue-collar person who goes through that. You could have a degree from MIT and go through that. It doesn't matter. But we all got to go through it. And certainly God uses our gifts and talents. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. You know, gifted singers should sing and and, and people that love children should work in children's church. Strength-based is from God. It's not from the secular world. In fact, most of what I shared is from Scripture. All truth really is God's truth. But the one thing the world doesn't have that we have is that we have to go through this sifting where we believe the powers of God and not of us. Now, we're going to end with Matthew. Look at verse 27. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew left all, rose up, and followed him, and then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who were with them. You know why they were all there? That's all Matthew knew. He's the only people he associated with. The religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, started complaining and saying, uh, why do you eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus said, that those who have no need of a physician, those who are well have no need of a physician, uh, but the sick, and I have come to call the righteous, not sinners, to repentance. Now, Matthew's calling is different than Peter's. And he's sitting literally in his place of business, the tax office. Now, this isn't a big glass IRS building. This is more like a toll booth. And if you want to see how irate people were against tax collectors, think about today. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, like, irate about where we live and tolls, okay? Like, outside of eight miles, you can't go anywhere without paying a toll. Even Baltimore now is, like, $20 round trip. They plunk down this new toll in Maryland that's $4 both ways. And I think the George Washington Bridge is, like, $13 now. And you know what really galls me when I go through a toll booth? Is when they say, thank you. Like, I just gave somebody $13 for nothing, and they're thanking me. Pray for me, okay? <laughs> so, that's the anger that the Jews had. Levi was a Jew. The fact that he was a tax collector meant he was a swindler, he was an apostate. He didn't believe in the God of Israel anymore. He subcontracted for Rome, and he skimmed off the top. Jesus comes and he says, follow me. Matthew leaves everything. And uh, you think, why would Jesus call a tax collector? Well, if you wanted to reach tax collectors, don't you think calling a tax collector would be a really good idea? And Matthew does what all 
all of us should do, but all new believers should do, and what all of us probably did, he gets all his buddies over, and they're all tax collectors. And then he has Jesus there, and have Adam, right? He had influence with these people. Uh, I look at this and I think, you know, and I don't know how you know this, but you know most evangelism is done in the church by people that are Christians five years and less. It's unbelievable. Some of you have been Christians 30, 40 years, but most evangelism is done by people that have known Christ five years and less. Do you know why? They still have contacts with lost people. The longer you walk with Christ, the less contacts you have with the lost world, unless that's your like number one gift, personal evangelism. Somehow we've got to fix all that. It's for another day. But Matthew had this ability to invite the people that would never go to a synagogue, never go hear Jesus speak. Now, there's some balance here, right? Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He wanted to save the sick. Notice how he didn't bring him to the synagogue right away? Like, he didn't walk Mary Magdalene into the synagogue. He didn't walk these tax collectors into the synagogue. Because the synagogue is where people were growing and it was pure and all that. Um, I think the church today, we're trying to bring these people in, but we're certainly not changing our service for people. Like Jesus didn't say, hey, come to our service today. We've kind of, you know, configured it for tax collector types. Or we're going to hand something out the door that will make harlots feel accepted. That's not what he did. They went into the highways and the byways and found these people. The end of the day, people are lost. The end of the day, people need Jesus. And the only way we're going to reach them is through compassion and love and grace, through the scriptures that make us wise on the salvation, and by understanding that nothing of our human endeavor can bring them to Christ. I mean, it's just something you got to understand doesn't mean you give up. It's just something you understand. And then you pray for the power of God. Um, I have tried to bring people the gospel through what I thought, oh my gosh, this is the best thing for these people and I'm going to bring them. And nothing ever happens. And then I've heard stories of people getting saved in the craziest ways. The guy who runs the Bowery Mission in New York City, started by Charles Spurgeon's brother, um, was a cocaine addict. Walked to the Bowery Mission in New York City because he wanted food. And you have to sit through a program. Somebody plays worship, somebody preaches. He said, I don't remember anything they preached that day. He said, I looked on the wall, there was a scripture. The scripture was something I learned in Sunday school as a kid. Somehow, God sparked faith. I was saved. Five years later, he was running the mission and still runs it today, 72 years old. Every time I go there, I tell him to tell the story. It's, it's phenomenal. It's the power of God. Messages in a bottle. Crazy things. Jesus built his team. They were all different. They didn't wear white shirts and black ties. They weren't all the same. Tax collectors, zealots, all political parties puts them together and taught them that brokenness equals broken nets. You want to see revival? You want your nets to burst? 
You want your business to flourish. You want your family to flourish. You want, you want to have so much left over, you don't know what to do with it. Surrender. The way up is down. You have to descend into greatness. And surrender and brokenness is really understanding who the captain is. He's Lord. He's master. He's not a guy with a great idea. He's curious. He's Lord. And when Jesus is Lord, everything else falls into place. Father, we thank you.